good morning and welcome. We're in a series, uh, kind of part two in our series on the book of Romans. And if you're a detail fanatic, then you know we kind of switched up titles a little bit. But that's purposeful and intentional. The first part of our Roman series, which we did this past fall, we entitled For Everyone. And the reason was, as you read through Romans, you discover a couple of key principles. And here they are. The book of Romans is rooted in the Old Testament. So the first four-fifths of the Bible are kind of where a lot of the imagery and vocabulary come from, and you can't really understand what's going on in Romans unless you understand something from the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. So it's rooted in the Old Testament. Secondly, Romans, the gospel, is, is centered in Jesus. Jesus is the point and purpose of all that's going on. And hopefully every week you kind of see how those lines are going back to Jesus and moving from Jesus to whatever he's saying. And then thirdly, we said repeatedly, rooted in the Old Testament, centered in Jesus, and for everyone. No one's excluded. And so in the first few chapters of Romans, everybody's included in deserving condemnation. But everybody is also included in being able to participate in the mission of Jesus and find forgiveness in him. So that's the for everyone part. But then when you get to the middle of Romans, you discover that the word therefore appears a lot. And it's almost as if Paul's saying, now that we've seen what God has done for us, those that accept that invitation now need to live out the consequences and the results of that. So therefore, we need to be living for everyone. The gospel is for everyone, and those that have accessed that and received that message, we now need to live for everyone as we continue what Jesus said. So we're in the therefore everyone section, the second half of Romans. We're going to kind of reread the first 17 verses of Romans 8, and we're going to look at some of the benefits of the gospel. That's kind of what Romans 8 is all about. And we've been here for a while, and we literally could take months and months. We're not going to do that. We're going to look at just a few of the benefits of uh, the gospel from Romans 8, and next week we will move on to the next section. But if you have your Bibles, follow along as I read, and as I've said a couple of times, Romans 8 is pretty dense. Lots of stuff here. I'm just teasing out a couple of main themes. We'll think about those, talk about some of the consequences and what they mean for us, and then you can figure out some of the other details or interest points for yourself. Here we go, 8-1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, 
are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit, you will put to death the, myth, the misdeeds of the body and you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. That should sound familiar. We just sang that, right? So that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in the sufferings, in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Lots of stuff in there. We could run down a different, uh, lots of different trails. We're going to pick out a couple of things. The first thing I want to do is to mention a couple of observations. And I'll warn you right up front. I have to be real careful here because I could make observations for hours and hours. And since there's no real football game today, just a Pro Bowl, and that's not a football game, there's not a whole lot to watch on TV either. Um, but I'm going to try to limit my observations to two, and then we'll look at the next couple of sections. My first observation is one that we spent a lot of time last week talking about, and that is spirit is all over those verses I read. In fact, if you were to count them up, you would see that the word spirit is mentioned 17 times in the verses that I read. 17 times. Obviously, the theme of Romans 8, 1 through 17, is the spirit. And I said last week, the spirit of Romans 7 is the law and how powerless the law is. Transition to Romans 8, but the spirit gives us power and energy. We looked at a couple of verses uh, last week. One of them tells us who the Holy Spirit is from John 14. And we said the Holy Spirit is our advocate, our second advocate. The Spirit stands in our place, just like the first advocate Jesus did. He speaks in our place. And you'll notice as you read on in Romans 8, you actually see that delineated clearly. Because when we don't have words, when we can't put into words the things that are on our hearts and we don't know how to pray, we can't formulate the sentences, the Spirit prays on our behalf through us. So the, an advocate stands in your place speaks in your place. Jesus stood in our place, our first advocate, speaks in our place today before the Father. The Spirit stands in our place, speaks in our place as our advocate. So the big idea is Spirit, advocate. He comes alongside to speak and stand in our place. We also said that the Spirit gives power. In Acts 1.8, a verse that uh, we looked at a couple of years ago when we did our Acts series, and that was one of your memory verses back then, by the way. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. Chapter 7 says, the law is powerless, and if you're looking at the law to bring into your life the power you need to live, you're going to be severely disappointed. 
The Spirit brings power, though. So if you sometimes feel weak and frustrated, you can't be the husband or wife you want to be, the worker you want to be, the child you should be, the parent you need to be, the grandchild, the grandparent, all those things. As we look around at life, don't you feel weak? Well, if you're feeling weak, you need to look to the Spirit, the one who gives power. And we said primarily the Spirit gives power in two areas. The Spirit gives us power to produce character, and we looked at the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit also gives power for mission, gifts, so that we can continue what Jesus started. So that was kind of the Spirit stuff. We talked about that last week. If you're a little bit confused about that, you can either go online, listen to last week's message, a whole lot of stuff we didn't cover there, but at least it'll, it'll fill in some of the gaps on what I just said. But I want to make one other observation. Not just about Romans 8, but about Romans 1 through 8. And I feel like I need to regularly make this observation because the gospel is so counterintuitive to everything else we know in life. Everything in life is built off of the same paradigm. And the paradigm works like this when you're little. Say please and I'll give it to you. You've never done that, right? Say thank you or I'll take it back off of you. You've never done that, right? Get good grades and I'll pay you. You've never done that. Um, if you do really well, you'll get into the college of your choice and mom and dad's hearts will be full of joy. Uh, if you get really good grades in college, you'll get a job and move out and mom and dad will celebrate for months on end, right? We cut our teeth on this performance kind of paradigm. And then you get a job and you have performance evaluations, right? And so you kind of list the goals you've got for the year or for the quarter. And then you sit down with a supervisor, with a team. Now, how did you do on those goals? If you exceeded the goals, maybe you get a bonus. If you hit the goals, maybe you get a little bonus. If you miss the goals, you may not work there too much longer. We're built on this performance paradigm. When we're kids, when we're in school, when we go to work, and let's be honest, we often treat each other like that, right? You've got a mortgage or you're, you're a tenant renting. Yeah, see how long you live there if you stop paying. That's the performance paradigm, right? Well, the problem is we take that performance paradigm and since we're so familiar with it, all of life revolves around that, we take that performance paradigm and slip it into our religious thinking about God. And we begin to think like this. Okay, so if I do what God says, he'll love me more. If I follow through and obey, he'll answer my prayers. If I don't, he won't answer my prayers. I've got to jump through the hoops. If I live a really wretched, terrible life, God's not going to accept me and love me. That's the performance paradigm. Um, so some of you may have properties that you rent, or some of you may be renters of properties. And I was thinking about this uh, sitting up here this morning, talking to people. And here's, you ever notice that a landlord and a tenant can have really good relationships? One of my daughters rents a property, and she has a really good relationship with her landlord, who actually lives in California. She has a good relationship for three reasons. She pays her rent, she obeys the rules, and she respects the landlord. You know what, if you're a tenant and you pay your rent and you obey the rules and you respect the landlord, you can have a great relationship with your landlord. Now let me ask you, how good are your kids at those three things or were they when they lived at home? Were they real good at paying the rent? So what, rent? 
Were they real good at obeying the rules? How about respecting the landlords? Did that work real well? No. Why, why didn't you throw them out? Because they're not your tenants, they're your kids. That's the paradigm shift, right? We are so used to the performance paradigm that we kind of take it, slip it over into our thinking about God, and when we do, we wind up with that first uh, linear little chart there, and here's how it works. The religious paradigm boots off of the performance paradigm and sounds like this. You're going to believe, and then you're going to obey, and then God will rescue you and save you and answer your prayers and give you the things that you want. And can I be honest with you? I know some of us in this room live off of that paradigm. You believe, I believe I go to church. I, I believe what the Bible says. Now my job is to take what I believe and obey what it says. And if I do a really good job at that, God will love me and bless me and he'll come into my life and he'll forgive me of my sins and he'll answer my prayers and he'll help me in my marriage. Can I be honest? That's not Christianity. The paradigm of Christianity is not believe, obey, saved. That's not how it works. If that's the Christianity paradigm, we're all screwed. Because I don't know about you, I'm not real good at that middle obeying thing. And I know some of you, you're not either. Uh, you may pretend, but, but that's not the Christianity paradigm. Here's the Christianity paradigm. Believe, saved, obey. Yes, some of you need to be reminded, obedience is part of the paradigm. We should be obeying what God says, but not in order to get, in order to say thanks and to live in gratitude. I'm reading through uh, the book of Exodus these days, right? Finish Genesis, I'm in Exodus. The paradigm, even all the way back in Exodus, it's, it's all over and over and over again. God comes and sees the Israelites in this predicament in slavery in Egypt under the boot and the whip of the Egyptians. God delivers them. He sets them free, leads them out into the wilderness. They are now free. He saves them from slavery. It's after they're delivered that he says, now, here are the commands I would like you to obey. Moses didn't go into Egypt with the commandments and say, hey, God noticed your problem. If you would obey all this stuff, God will get you out of this mess. That's not the paradigm. God delivers them, sets them free, saves them from their predicament, and then says, in response to what I've done graciously, now obey me. You think, Charles, you say this all the time. Yeah, because that's not how we live life, right? We live according to that first paradigm. We live according to that performance mentality, and we've got to get away from that, or you're never going to understand the message of the Bible. The Bible is not believe, obey, save. The message of the Bible is believe, save, obey. And I don't know about you, that's really good news, because remember I said a few minutes ago, I have trouble with that obey thing. The second paradigm doesn't have obedience as a condition of my acceptance and forgiveness. Obedience is a result of my forgiveness and acceptance. That is the gospel. And I don't know about you, I need to remind myself regularly of that and be reminded about that regularly. And so I thought you did too. That's why that's my second observation. Let's move on from there and talk about a, a second thing that comes up all over Romans, but it's crystal clear in chapter, or in verse one of chapter eight, but you may have missed it because we looked at it last week, and that's identification, identification. Verse one says this, and you should remember, we memorized this last week. Uh, you want to read it together again? Some are nodding, most are saying no. You're going to read it anyway, all right? Here we go. And if you don't read it loudly, we'll keep doing it till you do. 
All right, here we go. Ready? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those. I was pretty good. Now, we spent most of our time last week talking about the no condemnation principle. That's wonderful, right? We talked about the good news of that. But notice the last three words. That no condemnation only comes to those who were in Christ Jesus. That's the identification piece. In chapter 8 of Romans, Paul says, when you admit your failures, throw yourself on the mercy of God and trust in Jesus, you are put in Christ Jesus and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, comes into you. We're in him and he's in us. That's kind of the picture. That's identification all over the place. And if you want to see a picture of that, this afternoon, you can turn back two chapters to Romans 6 and read his discussion of baptism. What's Paul say in baptism? It's about identification. So let me just walk you through in a, in a couple of sentences the mission of Jesus. Jesus came from heaven and walked this earth alive. He was then killed and buried. He then rose again from the dead. That's Jesus' mission. What is portrayed in baptism? Well, when you walk into the water, you're alive. And when that pastor or whomever kind of takes you and puts you under the water, the picture is you are now dead. And if he holds you under a long time, you will be dead. I've done a few of those and I would like to, oh, sorry, we'll stop there. <laughs> you're alive, but the picture is you're dead. But what's the last picture? You don't stay there. We don't end the baptismal service with everybody in the pool under the water. They are then raised to life again. Baptism is a picture of living out the mission of Jesus in every person's life who gets baptized. That's why we say, if you haven't been baptized and stood before your brothers and sisters here at Calvary in this community, you need to do that. If you're in Jesus and the Spirit is in you, you need to stand before the rest of us and so the next time we have a baptism, you need to say, yeah, I need to do that. And you need to say, hey, I am identified with Jesus. I'm in him by faith, and the Spirit is in me by faith, and this is the story that I am now part of. It's not our story. It's Jesus' story that we're part of. We don't write our own story. We live in Jesus' story. That's why we say, now continue what he started. But you continue the story that you pictured when you were baptized. Now go live that out. See how that works? So that's the picture of in Jesus' identification. I want to call your attention to a, another big theme here in Romans 8. And that is, let's call it top of mind. Top of mind. Do you notice beginning in verse 5? I think we have verses 5 to read up here. Beginning in verse 5... I think we have verse 5 there. There it is. You notice how mind comes up a lot, like mind thinking? And this is free of charge. <laughs> the word mind, that category in the Bible, is very close to and almost synonymous with heart. So when the Bible says, love the love Lord your heart with all your heart, soul, and mind, they're very synonymous terms. We, as Americans, we think mind much too cognitively compared to how the Bible uses the term. Mind is where you make your decisions. Mind is where you love and where you value, where you find your identity. That's mind. Now notice when it talks about your thinking and mind, here's what it says. Don't set your minds on the flesh, but set your minds on the spirit. A little further down it says, some of you have your minds governed 
by the flesh. Others of you have your minds governed by the spirit. Set your minds, govern your minds. And I was sitting at my desk where I was thinking, well, how can I say that? I can say it just the way, oh, set your minds. And I said, well, Charles, all you did was, yeah, but what does it mean? Does that help you understand? Have your minds governed. That kind of sounds like, you know, it, it's a governmental thing and administrative. That didn't sound right. And then on Wednesday, all that changed. I was at a meeting and different groups of people were coming in, um, different business line leaders. And the one business line leader that came in and did his presentation, his line of business excelled. Not only all the others, he far surpassed his own goals and objectives for the year. And so we're all sitting, wow, this is great. We're all semi-applauded. We're, we're acting like we didn't care, but we were all excited. Wow, this is great. And one person at the table said, so how did you do that? And immediately he said, because I kept the goals top of mind. Top of mind. I kept the goals on the top of my mind. And every single time we had a meeting, I made sure our goals and objectives were top of mind for every person at the meeting. We had top of mind thinking every single day. That's what Paul's calling us to do. Paul isn't just saying, well, if somebody mentions the gospel, be able to flip through, you know, the Rolodex or the, you know, the, 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 the CD of your mind and come, oh yeah, Jesus, that's right, died for my sin, rose again, I'm good, right? That, that's not it. Keep the gospel top of mind. Have your thoughts centered in that. Have your thoughts governed, set on that. Not facts you can recall if something happens and all of a sudden you can, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. No, no, no. Have those things Top of mind. You may be thinking, well, Charles, what should we have top of mind? Okay, how about this? Advocate number one, the mission of Jesus. What should you have top of mind? Advocate number two, the spirit, who takes all that Jesus accomplished and makes that real for you. What should you have top of mind? You should have top of mind the mission of Jesus and the fact that we continue what he said. They need to be top of mind. I was reminded of that. I used to have an aunt. She uh, lived in North Wales. And uh, I grew up in Philadelphia, kind of right downtown. And I remember as a kid, when we would come visit my aunt and uncle and my cousins in North Wales, we thought we were going to the boondocks, let me tell you. Uh, we would come up 309, I think, oh my goodness, we may never be able to find our way home out here in the wilderness. Uh, yeah, I live further out now. <laughs> but anyway, we had an aunt that lived there. And uh, later in life, after, her, after my uncle died, she got a dog, and it was a gross, fluffy little white poodle. <laughs> and I was never really fond of her dog. I was less fond of, she named him Georgie. Like, there are a whole lot of better dog names than Georgie. What? Who? Georgie? Well, my aunt was, uh, would always say, she would literally say, you, you can ask my daughters. She would literally say dozens of times every time we would visit her, Georgie, Georgie, mind. That's kind of an old expression, right? Some of you say that, right, to your, to your grandkids. You mind. Well, what are you telling them to do? You say, recall the fact. Georgie, mind. Remember where your crate is. Is that what she's saying? Georgie, mind. Remember, don't go to the bathroom in the house. You have to go out there. Mind. No, no, no. She's not saying recall facts. She was saying, Georgie, keep me top of mind. Keep what I'm saying to you top of mind. 
Georgie, mind. I kind of think that's what Paul's saying to us in Romans 8. Hey guys, Calvary Church, a couple thousand years after I wrote this letter, mind, mind. Keep identification with Jesus. Keep the mission of your first and second advocate. Top of mind, top of mind. And that's a battle, isn't it? Our battle is not winning God's favor. Our battle is not trying to work up enough righteousness so God will forgive us. Our battle is keeping what Jesus has already done and the spirit has applied top of mind. That's our battle. Our battle isn't winning those things. Our battle is taking that victory that's already won and keeping it top of mind. That's what we've got to do. And so Paul writes seven chapters, reminding him of the story. And when he gets to Romans 8, he says, now, set your mind on that stuff. Set your mind. Have your thoughts and uh, attitudes governed by what I've been writing about. Keep those things top of mind. I don't know about you. That's good advice. And that, friends, is where we battle. That's where we need to battle. Keeping the mission of Jesus top of mind. Because there are lots of other thoughts that compete with that. And if you're anything like me, you wind up running down those other roads. And the gospel and the mission of Jesus is kind of bottom of the pile, not top of mind. Paul says, keep it top of mind. One last thing I want to call your attention to. And that's all this stuff at the end of the verses I read, which are all about adoption. So let me read the last paragraph here again. Verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Um, you know what I always find interesting whenever I read the word Abba? Um, Abba is actually the way you say kind of daddy, da-da, the way you say that in Aramaic. That's often how Jesus started his prayers. So if you were to read through the Gospels, remember all Jesus' prayers that begin Father? Actually, Jesus begins Abba. Every language has an Abba, right? And they almost all sound alike. Dada, Opa, Papa, Abba, all the same. They all mean the same thing. Almost the first syllables you say to your dad, the one who loves you, provides for you, are Abba, Papa, Dada. They're all the same. And so when Jesus prays, he says, Abba. And what's he say to us? The Holy Spirit adopts us into the family so we now can call the creator of the universe who sits at the top of the org chart of everything. You can just call him Dada, Abba, Abba. He's your dad. You know, the one time Jesus does not call his father Abba is when he's on the cross. Only time. He doesn't begin his prayer with Abba, Father. Only time. He's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
In that instant, Jesus was taking the cross of our sin, the curse of our sin on himself. Jesus stepped out of the Abba relationship so we could be adopted into the relationship. So Jesus's Abba became my God so those of us can call God Abba. Keep that top of mind. It'll change how we think and how we live, don't you think? What does adoption bring? And some people are kind of worried, well, I don't want to be adopted. I'm a child of God. Well, here's how the story goes, friends. God has one ultimate son. His name is Jesus. And God has thousands and millions and billions of adopted sons and daughters because of the mission of the ultimate son. I remember a, a couple of years ago, we were talking about adoption in a, in a small group I was part of. And I remember asking the question, so uh, what does it mean to be a child? Like, wh what, are, what are some of the results that come from Immediately, one guy said, it means authority. I thought, authority? What do you mean, like your kids boss you around? No, 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 I don't, they don't boss you. Here's what I mean. They think my stuff is their stuff. They think they have authority over all my stuff. Uh, you parents ever think like that, right? Um, yeah, what does it mean? Access and intimacy and authority. Your kids, here's my guess, your kids treat your stuff as if it were their stuff. And when they do, a part of you smiles, right? Even when they borrowed the tool that you're looking for and can't find. Um, you kind of smile, right? Because that authority, that access, that kind of ownership because they're your kids is a clear signal to you that they know they're your kids. Your coworkers can't come into your house, into your garage, and take your stuff. Well, they might. You'd shoot them probably when they're walking down a driveway. I'd make sure they're in the house if you're shooting them, right, I heard. Um, <laughs> but kids come and do it all the time, right? They treat your stuff as their stuff because they're your kid. It is your, it is their stuff because they're yours and your stuff is their, that's how it works. And there's kind of joy in that. Yeah, so play that back a little bit. If the king of the universe is your appa, he loves it when you treat his stuff as your stuff. But boy, how often we fret and get anxious and discouraged and can't sleep and worry and become depressed, worrying so much about stuff. Here's my guess. Bill Gates, I'm just guessing. Well, our father has a whole lot more stuff than Bill Gates does. And yet we worry and fret. Keep your adoption top of mind, Paul would say. Keep it top of mind. How about this one? Um, Inheritance, isn't that a big point of what I read? Inheritance. Now here's kind of a weird thing. When I say the word adoption, I know because this is American, it's 2019 now. You thought I was gonna say 18, it's 2019 now. And when we say adoption, we almost always think infants or babies. But here's a weird deal. Roman adoption, which would have been the context of Paul's day, most adoptions were of adults. I wanna be adopted. As long as I can pick my parent, I want to be adopted. Um, 
But in the Roman culture, adults got adopted. And do you know why adults would look for someone to adopt? Because they didn't have an heir. And maybe they accumulated a business. Maybe they had lots of stuff. Maybe they started this thing. They've accumulated possessions and business. And they don't have anybody as an heir. So what do they do? They look for, they look for an adult. They adopt the adult. And the adult becomes their heir and gets all their stuff. Wow. Remember back in the Abraham-Sarah story? What does Abraham do? Abraham says, okay, God, look, you know, <laughs> this isn't going to work with a real baby. How about if I take Eliezer of Damascus and I'll make him my heir? What's Abraham saying? Hey, God, I'll adopt Eliezer and he'll be the heir. Eliezer wasn't a baby. He was a grown man. Abraham's saying, hey, let's do this adoption thing. I need an heir. Yeah, what does Paul tell us? When you're adopted into the family, you're an heir, a full heir with your older brother, Jesus. Wow. Inheritance. You also have security. You don't get thrown out of this family, do you? When we talked about that performance relationship, here's how it went. If you pay the rent, obey the rules, and respect the landlord, you're on good terms. If you don't, you get thrown out. You don't treat your kids like that, do you? They don't pay the rent. They don't respect the property. They often tick off the landlord. And they're still your kids. And that relationship is solid and secure. Keep that top of mind, Paul would say. You're going to need it because when you go through life, you get kind of banged and bruised and you wonder if you're going to have enough stuff to make it to the other end. Remember who your dad is. Remember the inheritance. And remember this relationship is good forever. And there's one last thing that sometimes doesn't make it to the discussion of adoption. There's a responsibility in adoption. And the responsibility is on the part of those that get adopted. You know, they're really adopted, and that relationship is secure, and there's an inheritance, and there's acceptance, and there's authority, and there's stuff is your, all that stuff is true. But we wouldn't look too kindly on those kids that got adopted if they disrespected the parents, trashed their stuff, and never lived out that family value, priority, and relationship. You know, the kids that get adopted have a responsibility, not to earn the relationship, but because of the relationship, to kind of live it out and say, because of all that was done for me, I need to honor my parents and I need to kind of live in ways that love them and I need to start living by the priority and the values of my adopted parents. I think Paul would say, oh yeah, keep that top of mind. Adoption is not a process. It's instantaneous. I had a discussion Friday morning with some friends and uh, one of the guys in the room was adopted when he was 10 years old. And there was also an adoption attorney in the room. And I asked the attorney, tell us how adoption works. Here's how it works. You show up at orphan's court. That's where adoptions take place. And the judge sits behind the bench. And the hopeful parents come in and they stand at the one table. And the child comes in, and when the child enters the courtroom, regardless of their age, that child is a child of another parent or parents. Judge kind of 
talks. Here's the story. Eventually, the judge bangs his gavel, signs the paper, and that child leaves a legal child with acceptance and authority, inheritance, security, and responsibility of the new family. That's not a process. That happens instantaneously. The child comes in, a member of one family, and leaves a member of another family. That's what Paul's been saying for seven chapters. This is an instantaneous event. When you trust in Jesus Christ, when you're in him and his spirit is in you, you are a child of God with all the benefits and responsibilities that come, you're in. I then looked at a man who was adopted when he was 10 years old, probably 40 some years ago, and I said, now how long does it take you to feel that? And he said, I'm still working on that. That's what the spirit does. The son gets you adopted into the family of God. The spirit comes inside and makes that new relationship real to us. And how does it become more real and more real? You keep these things top of mind. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this awesome message that we could never make up and it's hard for us even to process. Lord, we often live in fear because we don't have our sonship, our daughtership top of mind. We've got a merit base performance paradigm at work and we think we're in and we think we're out and we don't deserve and we haven't earned and all the while the spirit I'm thinking is uh, maybe even weeping saying if they only knew if they would only keep top of mind the mission of advocate number one making them children of God and the mission of advocate number two making it real to us from the inside out and how that works is you keep it all top of mind.